Well, I hope that uh, too many of you are not terribly disappointed with me this morning. What I mean is we are probably not going to be where you were expecting to be, namely Romans chapter 8. I realize we set up sort of a climax last week. I hope that you are anticipating going forward into the glorious contents of Romans 8, uh, which is exactly, by the way, uh, why Romans 7 is written the way that it is. It's sort of like a man who's uh, trapped in a building. He's told that it's on fire. And here, eight stories below, is the fire department with their trampoline telling him to jump. He knows he ought to, but he doesn't quite believe the building's on fire. But finally, as the flames get closer and begin to singe his skin, and he realizes all hope within is lost, he finally throws himself out the window and is spared, which really is what Romans 7 does to us. I mean, you can be told that there's no confidence to be had in the flesh. You can be told there's no help to be found there. But uh, for most of us, until we experientially understand that, we really don't believe it's true. We're still trying to go back into the building just to solve the problem instead of leaping out, resting upon the merit of another. So anyway, there's a couple of reasons why we're not back in Romans 8. For one, I realized for various reasons I'll not get into, but as I was, I was gung-ho to go forward here, but... I realized that for various reasons we would, if I started Romans 8 today, we actually would not be back there for at least four more Sundays. So it would end up being a five-week gap uh, between the two, which I really have a hard time doing. Okay, We're at a good stopping point now, but I hate to begin that chapter and then have a five-week break. Okay, I really, I really don't like doing that. Uh, the other reason is I started a series last Sunday night on the parable of the prodigal son. I really, really, really want to finish that. Uh, before the month is over, again, for a lot of reasons I'm not going to get into. So I'm going to do something I don't normally do. We're actually going to blend the uh, topic of Sunday evening with Sunday morning, at least for one week. Okay, So we're going to be looking at the parable of the prodigal son this morning, again, for those of you uh, that were here last Sunday night. So turn there, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I do plan, by the way, Lord willing, to be back in Romans 8 on the, uh, what is it, the 26th? Is that... Is that that? I'm getting my dates all mixed up. I think the 26th is the Sunday. So we'll have time to hit it there, and then the Martins will be here, and then so there won't be as big of a gap. So Luke chapter 15, if you'll stand there with me. And Luke 15, we'll read part of this parable once again, and we will go forward. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Let's pray. Our Father, I know all of us can identify with those words. We find that we often have prodigal hearts. 
Father, I pray you'd give us understanding as we look at this portion and other portions of Scripture. I pray that you would equip us and help us, Lord, to not just understand this passage, but so many other vitally important passages. Lord, help us to grow in our gracious spirit as well as our discernment. Lord, sharpen us as we fellowship with each other, as we have our minds transformed by your word properly understood as we deal with so many different contemporary issues that we have to face and many we have to combat there's no way around it Lord strengthen us and encourage us the task that lays before us I pray you'd minister to our hearts this morning through the passages that we read in Jesus name Amen Now, if you were here last Sunday night, we are in the middle of actually introductory material uh, considering this parable of the prodigal son, which I think is actually quite vital to uh, step back and look at so that we can understand it properly. This is a parable, of course, which has been the subject of untold numbers of famous sermons throughout the years. It's uh, been called by many the greatest story that Christ ever told, and again, I know that's largely opinion, but... Uh, many reputable scholars have made that statement. It's definitely a passage of Scripture that's of great benefit to the Christian, especially as it gives such a beautiful window into the heart of God. But I believe it's necessary to take some time and lay out some guidelines for interpreting parables in general. I mean, on one hand, parables are these uh, vivid word pictures that teach uh, wonderfully deep truths at times that have a way of just... Sticking in our minds, they had a tremendous part in the teaching of Christ. I imagine you found in your own experience, someone can read you a portion of the book of Hebrews, like chapter 10. Somebody can read you a parable, and you're going to remember the parable because of the simple language and the word picture that just sort of sticks in your mind. In fact, many of you are thinking of parable pictures, uh, probably as I say that right now. But here's the other side of that coin. There's few sections of Scripture that have fallen victim to more outlandish and strange interpretations and butcherings than the parables of Christ. I mentioned several of those examples last week. I'm not going to go through them all again, and they are definitely all over the map. The one example I gave, I'll just rehash for the benefit of those that were not here, comes from Augustine, or Augustine, depending on who you ask, one of the so-called church fathers. Now, if you're familiar with church history, it was this man who laid the foundations of the Roman Catholic Church by his teaching. He also laid the foundations for Augustinian or uh, hyper-Calvinism, which John Calvin picked up later on. He also laid the foundations for an allegorical approach to interpreting the Bible. In other words, the passages dealing with salvation, we're going to take at face value, and the rest of the Bible, we're going to just come up with a deeper sorts of hidden meanings and uh, you can imagine what that has given vent to throughout the centuries. I mentioned his interpretation of the Good Samaritan, Augustine. And by the way, the prevailing opinion throughout the centuries on that particular parable is that the certain man was Adam. He was from Jerusalem, which was the heavenly city. He was going to Jericho, which was the moon, which signified mortality. He fell among thieves, which is Satan and his angels. They stripped him of his robes of innocence. They left him half dead, meaning physically alive, spiritually dead. 
Uh, here comes a priest and Levite, which is the ministry of the Old Testament. Here comes a Samaritan, which is Christ. They take him to the inn, which of course is the Roman Catholic Church, under the care of the innkeeper, which just has to be the Apostle Paul, doesn't he? And so this is the type of thing I'm talking about. You throw a bunch of allegory, and really you, you try to find an allegorical deeper meaning inside of language that is already intended to be figurative. You can end up literally anywhere on the map. And so that interpretation I've just mentioned prevailed for centuries until what I mentioned last Sunday night, until tremendous resurgence of literal interpretation in the last few centuries. And once again, all of us ought to thank God that He allowed that to happen. That there are men who just take the Word of God for what it says and harmonize it and balance it and teach all the proper things in their proper perspective. That indeed can be done. Okay, we can know what the Word of God says. And I hope it's burned in everyone's mind. I've said it before, I'll say it more throughout the years. Every single passage of Scripture has one legitimate interpretation. One. Not five, not ten, not twelve, not two, but one. Now, that doesn't mean we always know what it is. I will tell you candidly, there are passages I look at and I will tell you I do not know what that means. You've heard me do it here in the last year. I'll bring up a passage and say, let me give you a few plausible interpretations that could be right, but I'm not sure which one it is. It's becoming increasingly in vogue for people to sit around in a group, and here's what they ask. What's this passage mean to you? I hope we're able to understand what a dangerous question that really is. Here's a better way to frame that question. What does this passage mean? In its historical, grammatical setting, understanding who said it, why they said it, who they said it to, what is God's meaning of this portion of Scripture? Once we determine that, how does it apply to you? You see the difference? The first one subject to how you and I feel or think or what we're going through. The second one has God as the authority on His throne. His Word reigns supreme, and now it's up to me to apply it. So any passage of Scripture is going to have one interpretation, and several applications. But to make proper application, most of the time we have to come up uh, with the proper meaning first. I mean, really, Paul illustrated this in 1 Corinthians 10. Remember what he said about the Old Testament, particularly the idolatry of the Jews? These things are written for what? For our examples that you should not lust after evil things. You'll find as a New Testament Christian, a lot of the Old Testament isn't directly, specifically aimed at you. However, it is written for your admonition. So we determine what it meant in its historical context and then make proper application to where we find ourselves. That's how we rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, by the way, growth in our Christian life is going to entail many times having our interpretations changed. How many of you have ever held an opinion of a particular passage of Scripture and you hear a sermon somewhere and somebody you know is properly interpreting and they blow your interpretation to smithereens. I've had that happen a number of times. I'm thankful for it. I really am. I can look at several times in my Christian life where God has used somebody in some setting like that to bring out something and I go, why was I wrong? I think of D.L. Moody. Here he's founded a college and he brings this well-learned doctor to come and speak, and he takes his chair around and goes and sits down there with all of his students. The guy begins to preach, and all of a sudden Moody screams out, There goes one of my sermons! 
Ten minutes goes by and he screams out again, there goes another one! <laughs> you see, he had, a, he had a teachable spirit. Okay, so the parables of Christ, though, once again, they fit into two broad categories. There's his kingdom parables. There's 21 of those mentioned primarily by uh, Matthew. And that really should be no surprise because the purpose of Matthew's gospel is presenting the king who is presenting himself to the nation Israel to sit upon David's throne. So it's no shock the kingdom parables are going to primarily occur there. And then, by the way, I just touched on it last Sunday night, there is a vast difference between kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Quickly stated, the kingdom of God is those that are his genuine subjects. Strictly speaking, today we're not building the kingdom. That's not New Testament Christian terminology. We are building the church. But yet the kingdom of God has been a tremendous subject to the Scripture throughout the ages. And God is still indeed uh, having a kingdom that will be established, and His true subjects will be a part of that kingdom. kingdom of heaven is the sphere of those professing allegiance to Him, which includes those who are His subjects and those who are not. It's important to remember that. We'll talk about that more uh, as we look at Matthew 13. And by the way, we're going to be primarily in Matthew 13, and Luke chapter 15, if you want to put your fingers there, we're going to bounce back and forth between the two. And I hope this is a blessing to all of us as we seek to understand this. But, okay, so there's the kingdom parables and then the general parables of Christ. And there are 12 of those, and they hit on a wide variety of topics. And most of those are mentioned, 11, 12 of them are mentioned by Luke, all of them. But 11 of them are mentioned uh, only by Luke, and this one of the prodigal son is, is one of those. Now, I want to reiterate, okay, if you turn there to Matthew 13... I hope to keep at the forefront of our minds why Christ spake parables in the first place. And again, I apologize, this is going over this again for those of you that were here, but uh, we don't have to sit and wonder what the purpose of parables was. Christ tells us, he was directly asked that by his disciples, Matthew 13, verse 10. His disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Why are you speaking this way? He answers, Verse 11, he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. You can jump right across the page to verse 35. He spoke by parables that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. He's speaking of the Bible concept of mystery, which are things that were hidden in the Old Testament. God is now revealing in the New. So one of the purposes for parables on one side is to give vivid illustration to God's true subjects and to help them to understand uh, New Testament mysteries that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. So one of it is to reveal truth. But the other side, middle of verse 12, But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak out of them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand, and you can follow those verses. The other reason is given so that people will be confused and turned away. Yes, that's what I said. Remember, the word of God is a two-edged sword. To those who want truth, it will indeed enlighten them and open their mind. To those who want the truth to suck on like a piece of candy, or to sample like fine cheese or wine, and then to reject it, it has a hardening effect. You can find this all throughout different passages of Scripture. So Jesus speaks parables on one hand to help those understand who want to understand, 
but also to fill prophecy to turn particularly the Jewish nation over to blindness because they would not hear the truth. So in effect to them, he's saying, you want to be confused? Well, then be confused. I've spoken plain enough. Let me give you word pictures that will confuse you further since you don't really want to hear the truth. Yes, God does that. That's one of the facets of His judgment that really is, is quite terrifying. All right, now, can we interpret and apply parables with any degree of certainty? When we just left to, I mentioned there's hundreds of applications, maybe in the good cases only dozens. I mean, are we just left to human subjectivity? I feel real strongly about this. This is why this means this. This is what this passage means to you. You come up to somebody and say, well, I disagree. Let me tell you what it means to me. There's no authority in any of that. Can we understand the parables? Well, taking the fact that Christ said these were given for His genuine people to understand the mysteries that have been hidden from the foundation of the world, and given the fact that all Scripture is indeed given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and several other good things, okay, the answer to that absolutely has to be yes. Okay, God has not left us to some sea of confusion regarding understanding parables. There are wonderful truths to be understood if we understand them properly. So what we're going to discuss this morning is five principles for properly interpreting parables. Now this list is not exhaustive. In fact, I, I thought of three more this morning we could cover. Okay, but I'm going to say at least these are the main ones. These are the ones I think will help us the most when turning to a parable to understand uh, what exactly was being said. And they're not mentioned in any particular order, but what these are is principles that are based upon literal interpretation based upon honoring the Word of God, consistently applying them, and making them in harmony with the rest of the Scripture because we believe God wrote one book. You can be sure if you take a passage of Scripture and you come up with some brilliant interpretation that flies in the face of multitudes of other plain passages, you don't really have a brilliant interpretation. What you have is a problem. There's multitudes in so-called Christian teaching that do that today. They come up with some hidden gem. You ever see those sensationalist books? I've seen a number of so-called conservative pastors do this. Groundbreaking new book, all in capital letters. Must have. Things you've never heard before. You've never understood the book of Revelation until you've read this. Automatically, I want to burn the book. I mean, automatically, I know he's probably coming up with something outlandish that totally flies in the face with what the Scriptures actually teach. So we are going to be back and, uh, bouncing back and forth, like I said, between Luke 13 and 15 and Matthew 13. All right, principle number one. Now, again, I forgive me, please, if you were here. We touched on it last week. But I want to elaborate on it just a little bit. Okay, principle number one is some of the parables were spoken by themselves. Okay, they stand alone. The parable of the Good Samaritan is an example of that. It's just, it's by itself. He said it for a specific purpose to a certain person to answer a question. It was all alone. It's to be taken as all alone. But many of the parables we've got to keep in mind, Christ spoke them sort of like uh, clusters. You can take a picture like a cluster of grapes. Okay, there's all these different grapes, but they're part of the same vine of thought, and they're supposed to be taken together. I made reference to Genesis 41. The scene there is Pharaoh's had this disturbing dream, and what he sees in his dream is he sees 
that these seven skinny cows come up out of the Nile River and eat the seven fat cows that had just come up out of the river before them. He wakes up. He goes back to sleep. Now he sees seven ears of corn blasted with the east wind, and they're devouring seven good full ears of corn. And now he's troubled. He doesn't know the meaning. Well, here comes Joseph out of the prison. Remember what Joseph told him. The dream of Pharaoh is one. He's saying this isn't two different lessons. Uh, these are two different sides intended to illustrate the same truth. A lot of the parables function the same way. I also mentioned, it's, most of us have seen, some beautiful landscape painting. Here's this mountain scene. We saw them a lot, at least in Alaska. And here it's divided into three or four different sections of different frames. And they're intended to hang them all together. And you see one complete picture. Now you can say just as accurately there's four pictures as you can say there's one picture. Because the intention is those four put together make one complete picture that was intended by the artist. Notice in Matthew 13, if you're there. Okay, at the beginning. Christ gives the well-known parable of the sower, okay, which most of us know. I'm not going to go over it. His disciples come and ask Him, Why do you speak in parables? He answers them in verse 11, Because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, So there's the theme of what He's talking about. Mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And what He's doing is bringing under that category the parable of the sower. That was parable number one. Now if you follow just quickly through this chapter... Verse 24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man. Verse 31, another parable put he forth, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed. Verse 33, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. Verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hidden a field. Verse 45, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man. Verse 47, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net. Then verse 51, have you understood all these things? Of course, the answer is no, but they say yes because they think that they have. But what's clear, if you take that chapter as a whole, is essentially he's laying out seven different grapes that are all part of the same cluster. Okay, To divide these up, which many have, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but to divide those up into seven lessons that have nothing to do with each other and fight against each other is is missing the plain meaning of the text. He said all these in a row uh, for a very, very clear purpose. Now back in Luke 15. Luke 15, verse 3. And he spake this parable unto them, singular. Okay, singular parable. And of course what follows is really three parables which three times illustrate the same central truths. Okay, we see something similar in Luke 13 also, but we'll not turn there. And so he gives these three separate frames of the same picture. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, there's a lost son. In each case, something is lost, an animal, a coin, or a person, something is found. There is great rejoicing on the part of the finder as well as those surrounding the situation. Okay, So there again, to chop up these cluster parables into different meanings is inviting disaster because it's very evident in the text. Uh, the Lord didn't speak it that way. Okay, He spoke these to remain together. All right, principle number two. See if there's an interpretation given in the text itself. Really, this should be obvious, but I'm amazed how often it's not so obvious. I mean, think about it for a minute. Do you think Christ has the authority to turn around and interpret 
his own teaching. Yet a lot of what you see circulating, passing as Christian theology and teaching today, takes what Christ said and totally ignores all or part of it when he was speaking of his own parables. I mean, when Christ gives the meaning, we don't have to search for something deeper and hidden. What we're left with is to make application to ourself. He goes and explains everything about a parable, by the way, like the parable of the sower. We don't need to sit and analyze that and find 50 other things hidden in the text. We need to say, all right, now what does that have to do with me? He just told me what it means. He just told me what the symbols and elements are. Now what am I going to do with it? All right, Matthew 13. Okay, you can take Matthew 13, the parallel passage is found in Mark 4, where some of these kingdom parables are mentioned. Alright, does Christ give interpretation? He doesn't interpret every single individual grape out of these seven, but here's what he does interpret. The parable of the sower, the parable of the tares and the wheat, and the parable of the net. So in other words, the first one and the sixth and the seventh one, he does give commentary on and say, let me tell you what, they, what these things mean. Now we'll give more on that interpretation in a minute, but keep this in mind, okay? Because these are all one comprehensive picture, his interpretation of a few of them does indeed shed light on them all. We've got to keep that in mind. And there, and there certainly is some uh, central grains of truth there. Now how about the prodigal son? Back in Luke 15, there's at least a partial interpretation given. We find that in verse 7 and verse 10. I say unto you, likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Verse 10. Likewise, I say unto you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So he at least interprets part of it. You see rejoicing over whatever it is, whether object or son being found, just like that, and what we're given there is really twofold. We're given the central thought of the parable. Okay, the occasion for the telling of it is no question. It's the older brother. We'll get to that later on in another message. But the central figure in the parable is undoubtedly the father because it's his reaction to these two sons that is the central truth, the central grain of thought. And so he gives at least part of it. Okay, The rejoicing that's taking place is the angels... And really, I think, assumably, the angels of God and the angels in heaven, you can say between the angels and God, there is rejoicing over a sinner that repents. So he gives us at least, at least a part of that interpretation. Uh, by the way, notice he says in verse 7, there's rejoicing more than over a just person which needs no repentance. Now, at first, that may seem like a head-scratcher. I mean, is he saying God doesn't rejoice over somebody living a righteous life? Absolutely not. He cannot mean that. It's very similar. Remember when Christ said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance? He wasn't saying the gospel is only for the wicked, but some of you are good enough, you don't need it. What he was saying is, I didn't come to call those who were so righteous in their own sight that they think they don't need a Savior. I came to deal with sinners. Any of those on board? The same is true today. You take someone who says, I don't need a Savior, I don't need Jesus. Well, uh, cramming Jesus down the throats of no help. You've got to get them lost before you can bring them to Christ. They have to see themselves as undone. So he's saying is God's rejoicing more 
and these profligate, wicked sinners coming to him in true repentance than he is over the stale formalities of a thousand Pharisees all heaped together, which is most certainly the heart of God we see borne out in other places. All right, principle number three. We have to be consistent in identifying the types and symbols used. This is absolutely critical. I mean, this is where I think multitudes miss the ship and fall off the dock. I mean, you think about the, the types and the symbols Jesus used in the parables, we really got to come to just a couple of conclusions. I mean, either we believe the elements in the parables are just haphazardly chosen by a God who apparently is not intending to make his real meaning known, which I hope will mentally scratch off, or we understand these are perfectly chosen, could not be improved upon, spoken by the Son of God incarnate, intended to teach very clear things that he intends us to understand and apply. So in other words, the symbols used here have, have got to harmonize where possible, not just with the immediate context, but taking the scriptures as a whole. Now it's not possible to determine that in every case, excuse me, in every case. But many of the parables, it is possible to determine that. Let me give you an example. Okay, back in Matthew 13. Okay, Matthew 13. Right in the middle of these seven cluster parables, beginning in verse 31. You have two of them given in succession. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's, it's greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Number 33, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like, a, like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. So if we keep in mind the overall tenor of this entire passage that Christ has given some commentary on, if we harmonize the symbols that are used, it's really hard to be confused about what's being said. But let me just give you an example. This is something I've touched on before, but uh, post-millennialism. Okay, many of you are familiar with what that is. It's the teaching that uh, essentially Christ is going to return after the millennium. The average post-millennialist will tell you that we are going to overtake the world by the power of the gospel. And when the world has been taken over by the church and is worthy for Christ to return, then all of a sudden Jesus is going to come back and, uh, and all is well. It's interesting, just the theological history. That really has been the prevailing opinion throughout many centuries. Many of the old commentators are from that persuasion. George Whitfield preached from that persuasion. Godly brother, love him dearly. But he actually thought, he'd see these crowds come, that he was going to usher in the kingdom. Which I don't blame him for thinking that based on what he saw. When was the last time you saw 30,000 people under conviction of sin coming to a cornfield with no external motivation whatsoever to hear a man tell them about their crimes against God? I mean, they saw an, an amazing movement of God. Okay, but then you get into the 1900s. Here comes World War I. Following World War I in America comes the Great Depression. In the middle of the Great Depression, there's the Dust Bowl, which, by the way, many in those southern states thought was the end of the world. Following the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, what came next? Here comes World War II. Six million Jews die in Hitler's ovens. 3.4 million tons of bombs are dropped just by the Allies alone. 
a war that involves directly at least 30 different countries and kills roughly 72 million people, which is 3% of the world's population. I mean, that's the equivalent of a war today killing 210 million plus people. So what began to happen is people looked around and said, wait a minute, we are not exactly taking over the world for good. The gospel's not prevailing to the point where all is well, and so post-millennialism almost died. wish it would have. But the last 70 years, there's been a tremendous resurgence. And I'm going to touch on this from time to time. I know I've said it before, but I look out here and I see parents, I see a lot of children, I see a lot of homeschool families. There is a lot of good in the homeschool movement, but it is also responsible for the rampant spread of an amazing amount of heresy today. It's unbelievable. There's a lot of good, but there's also a shocking degree of gullibility and spiritual blindness that's spreading like a cancer. Everything from fad miracle diets to these lotions and potions that are going to fix everything to total and complete heresy. You sprinkle those together along with the contempt of the local church and some straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Call it a convention and it's sure to attract thousands of people who in many cases will not discern between truth and error. Now I'm not trying to be unkind, that's fact. That's one of the primary reasons why post-millennialism is so rapidly on the rise. I hope we're able to recognize, number one, it's based on an allegorical interpretation. Secondly, it leads you to a totally different commission than Christ gave. This is why thousands of people up to a few years ago would flock to hear Doug Phillips preach on characteristics of a multi-generational visionary and why all of you should have ten children who should all have ten children so that in ten generations your millions of descendants will take over the United States government through gospel preaching and military force. Is that the Great Commission? That's the essence of post-millennialism. Through groups like that. It's all over the place. Now, what do you think the post-millennialist has to do with those parables we just read? He can't take a negative or so-called pessimistic view of church history, despite what he sees around him. So what do they do with those parables? Well, the woman hiding the leaven in the measures of meal, what is that? That pictures the gospel permeating the entire world until all men are believers in Christ. You know, the parable of the mustard seed, it has to typify this small beginning of the church, and all of a sudden it explodes until all the world is falling at Christ's feet of their own volition. Aside from the fact that it's obviously not what we see in the world around us. I mean, I hope some of us are disturbed by that. But again, back to the premise. How do you refute that and deal with it? It's not enough to say, well, I disagree. I mean, are there ways? Here's what I was amazed by. Uh, by the way, I just read an article yesterday by in John MacArthur. He's no post-millennialist. I was actually surprised to read it, but that's the position he's defending of this particular parable. Now you can look up a sermon and read it. The the gymnastics he does to get around the plain meaning of the text is mind-boggling. In my opinion, takes more faith than just taking Christ at His word in the context. Like I said, I was surprised by that. All right, so uh, how do we refute that? Well, let's see, where was I? I lost my place. First of all, the interpretation runs against the tenor that Christ himself gave of these parables, which again all belong together. 
Christ interprets the parable of the sower. How many of those four different categories actually bore fruit and proved they belonged to God? Now that's debatable, but it was only a percentage. You take the last two parables. It's like a net. And in that net, you're going to gather uh, some good and some bad. And you're going to find the angels of God separate them out at the end of the age. Some are cast into hell and some are not. So Christ's interpretation of these parables, beginning and end, what is he saying? Is he preaching that the gospel is going to just overtake? Or that there's going to be some sifting to be done by God himself? Well, that's unquestionably the tenor of the whole passage. To just take two out of the middle and say, well, now here, these are teaching something totally different. Flies in the face of the passage. The other one is the uh, symbols that are used. What symbols are here? How about birds? Now you jump to the overall context of the rest of the Bible. You take out a concordance, look up birds, bird, and fowl. Here's what you'll find. There are a number of neutral references, okay, where a bird is a bird. Nothing real profound about that. We find the Old Testament sacrifices where turtle doves or fowl were part of those sacrifices, especially for those that were poor. But what you find is several cross-references that liken them to wicked false teachers that really fit in the context of the passage we're talking about. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Jeremiah 5.27, talking about the Jews. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. By the way, Genesis 15, where Abraham's justified by faith. Remember God's ratifying the Abrahamic covenant with him and Here's these animals spread out. What's Abraham doing? He's driving away the fowls of the heaven who are apparently typifying influences getting in the way of his offering to God. Here he is driving them away to the going down of the sun. How about the end? Let's jump to the end. Revelation 18.2. The subject there is Babylon being destroyed. Now, Babylon is this religious slash commercial enterprise which really is very synonymous with the kingdom of heaven, those that profess to know God. And here it's become this massive political, religious, uh, commercial organization that God's going to finally bring crumbling down to the ground at the end times. What he says in verse 2 regarding Babylon. Babylon has become the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. The last time you see foul mentioned in Scripture. They're feeding on the carcasses of the rebels that tried to fight against the Jews in Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. Not a very flattering picture. Right, someone says, well, that's not convincing enough. Well, let's go to the immediate context. Right in the sevenfold cluster of parables themselves, is there an interpretation given on what a bird represents? Okay, Christ is interpreting the parable of the sower. Verse 19. Now you remember, there's seed sown by the wayside. Here comes the birds or the fowls. They come devour the seed. Here's the Lord's interpretation. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. Okay, what's the bird in that parable? The wicked one. Okay, it's typical of Satan himself. And by the way, this is in the very same context. We're not left to wonder what a bird represents. Jesus himself tells us very plainly in the same flow of thought. How about another one? How about leaven? There's really, I don't, I don't think there's any need to cross-reference that. I really don't. Again, you take out a concordance, you look up leaven and see what it typifies in the Bible. 
How about New Testament references? Beware of the what of the scribes and Pharisees? The leaven. Oh, we forgot bread. And he said, no, I'm talking about their false teaching. Tell me something. Jesus speaks this multitude to a Jewish audience that had dozens of times cleaned their entire house top to bottom, rid it of leaven for a week every single year. What do you think they understood him to mean when he used leaven as a symbol? There's no reason to dance around it. They knew exactly what he meant. That's what we're to purge out of our life, our mind, our heart. Leaven is a very plain picture of satanic influence, of false teachers, of compromise and apostasy, etc., etc. There's no need to wonder about that. Okay, it harmonizes not only the immediate context, but the rest of Scripture. So let's, take, let's say you take the kingdom parables as a whole, Matthew 13. Okay, here's what the sevenfold snapshot shows. The kingdom of heaven is comprised of those who have heard the word of God and at least outwardly professed allegiance. Now as this kingdom is growing, there's going to be tremendous satanic opposition. Within this professing kingdom, there are the genuine and spiritually astute. There are those who recognize the gospel for what it is. They're typified by their fruit, the fact that they are wheat or that they are planted in good ground. They show it by their desires. They see the gospel as a pearl of great price or a treasure hid in a field. Okay, there's also going to be those who are planted by the devil who will increase in number over time. There's going to be this massive growth of this entity that starts out very small and reaches gargantuan proportions. And eventually it's going to be filled with evil teachers and satanic influences until the entire entity is corrupted. But the day is coming when God is going to see to it that the tares are separated from the wheat at the final day and he's not fooled in the least. Now tell me something. Is that overall picture in harmony with the rest of the New Testament? I wish I could take the time to prove that there's no question about it. It's introduced in the Gospels. It's further warned about introduced in the book of Acts. It's developed in the epistles and then we see the consummation in the book of Revelation Christ doesn't return to a world that loves Him. He returns to a world filled with rebels and He slaughters them all who are coming against Israel so much so that the blood flows to the horse's bridle. That is not the overwhelming success of the Gospel. I'm sorry. Coupled with the fact that throughout history, show me one country, show me one state, show me one city where every single person has become a genuine Christian, you'll not find it. You see? That can't be what that passage means. How about the parable of the prodigal son? Let's jump ahead again. Luke 15. I appreciate you putting up with a little bit of the tediousness here, but I think this is important to understand just the background. Okay, Luke 15. Now, we've already been told the joy in heaven over sinners that repent, uh, but what we're primarily concerned about is uh, figuring out who's the sinner that's repenting and who is his older brother. I mean, what do these symbolize? By the way, uh, some see a reference to the Trinity here. I think there's merit in that. You know, you take the seeker, the one looking, and all three parables put together. Okay, you have a shepherd, you have a father, and then you have this woman lighting a candle who's diligently seeking for that which was lost. I mean, you definitely could make a case that that's showing the three members of the Godhead. 
And by the way, you'll notice a numerical progression in this threefold uh, parable. Okay, it begins with one out of a hundred, then it goes to one out of ten, and then it goes to one out of two. And there's a progression in value. First, it's an animal that's lost. Then it's a piece of silver, which could buy several animals. And then it's a son, which is irreplaceable. So there's this ascending scale of, of value. Now we're going to confine ourselves to just two of the symbols, sheep and sons. It takes sheep, once again, there's hardly a need to cross-reference. The Lord is my shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. An unquestionable reference throughout history to those who were the people of God. How about sons? Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God in the New Testament Christian. How about Old Testament? Hosea 11.1, 1, a prophecy later on uh, applied to Christ. But before it was applied to Christ, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So if we're going to be consistent at all at applying these, we have to say sheep and sons apply unmistakably to the people of God. Now that, by the way, sets up one of the major difficulties in interpreting this parable. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, principle number four. Now pay careful attention to context, who the parable is spoken to, and who or what is the occasion. And there is a connection. You can't just divorce it from that. Uh, Matthew 13. He gives the kingdom parables. This massive crowd has gathered to Christ on the shore of the sea. I mean, so much so, he pushes himself out in a, out in a boat to create this sort of uh, natural amphitheater to speak to these untold thousands of people, uh, which, by the way, largely profess to be his followers. And he knew full well some of them were genuine and would become real disciples. Some of them were there just out of idle curiosity. They had nothing better to do. Some of them were there selfishly to gratify their own whatever inhibitions, to see some miracle or to be fed. And many of them would eventually be crying out for his own crucifixion. He was aware of all of this as he looked at this mixed multitude. So it's very fitting then that he cuts loose with this sevenfold parable which was aimed at getting them to examine themselves. Am I one who is going to bear fruit? Am I one who is following Christ as the pearl of great price? Or am I looking for some sort of carnival sideshow to gratify my own lusts until the next big thing comes along? That's who he's speaking to. All of you, he's saying, are within this professing kingdom. Now, where do you really fit? And keep in mind, the final day is coming when it's going to be sorted out. And you're going to be in one of two categories, so do something about it. prodigal son is given in response to the smug jeering of the proud Pharisees who derided Christ for showing such interest in the most notorious sinners of their society. So, these symbols, sheep and sons, who he's applying them to respectively is the publicans and sinners. The prodigal son is very clearly represented by uh, the sheep and, uh, and one of the sons 
The older brother is representative of the Pharisees. Now, these were two groups who were absolutely dead in their sins. Now, does that present an interpretive problem? If we take that at face value. I mean, if, the, if these symbols apply to the people of God, then how is it that He applies them to people that we know are dead in trespasses and sins? Well, that brings us to the last principle. Thank you for staying with me. One left and we're done. Principle number five, we have to determine the proper dispensational setting. Here's what I mean by that. We have to figure out where God's, where in this unfolding plan of God does this particular teaching primarily belong? What's the application uh, to the age that I am currently living in? Now keep in mind, I realize this parable occurs in what we call the New Testament. But remember this, the New Testament or the New Covenant is not so much talking about the second half of the Bible as it is the promise, the covenant that God made with the Jews to take away their sins and remember them no more. The New Covenant was instituted after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Ghost. So strictly speaking, chronologically, this parable still occurs in the Old Testament dispensation under law. Remember, Christ is made under law, grew up under law, obeyed the law, until he could be found sinless at his crucifixion. Now, the Old Testament passages have already quoted, called my son out of Egypt, we are his people, all we like sheep have gone astray. Uh, these are references to Israel as a whole. Now, the Old Testament Jews were born into a covenant relationship with God. The sign for the males is being circumcised the eighth day. They were born into the covenant with Moses. They were at least partly linked to the covenant with Abraham. They were given a land. They were given blessings. because Now this didn't mean they were converted, but it meant they did have some sort of covenant relationship with Him. This is why God refers to even lost Jews in the Old Testament as sheep, collectively. They were his covenant people to a point. They weren't converted because they were born that way. They still had to be saved by faith. But they were indeed uh, born into a covenant with him. They enjoyed a special relationship to God in large part because of Abraham's obedience. They were a peculiar treasure among the nations. Promised a land, given the scriptures, promised a Messiah and an everlasting king to sit on the throne. That's why we still refer to them as God's chosen people. Even though most of them are still dead in trespasses and sins. That's why, by the way, when God pleads with the Jews in the Old Testament, He doesn't plead with them to be reconciled or to start a new relationship. He pleads with them to return unto Me. Yeah, that's why Isaiah chapter 55, the language is return unto Me, not stop being at enmity with Me. Because they had it. I mean, this is covenant language. So this parable in its dispensational setting, is a rebuke to the Pharisees. Here's what he's telling them. Okay, the publicans and sinners, though they're far away from God's holy standard, they can still return to Him through His covenant with the Jewish nation and find pardon through faith in the plan of God. And by the way, he says, there will be ongoing celebration if these wicked sinners do indeed return to the Lord and God would take far more pleasure in their return than He would in the outward formalities of the Pharisees. But here's what we do see. Indirectly, God's love is gloriously displayed to both parties. 
Let me think about it. We'll develop this more later. But if the, the older brother is representative of the Pharisees, what do we see the father doing with him? He's pleading with them. He's reasoning with them. He's not chopping his head off. And one of the things that demonstrates is even towards these proud, wicked, self-righteous Pharisees, the heart of God is to plead with them and bring them to repentance. Like the man who wrote half of our New Testament who was one of those. Right? Possibly even in that crowd. Now, applicationally, on this side of the cross, with respect to you and I, what does it have to do with us? We have a relationship with God the Father through the new covenant, having been washed in the blood of Christ. The New Testament Christian. You remember the Old Testament language? Israel collectively is called a son, a wife, a sheep, collectively. Nobody in the Old Testament was referred to as a son of God individually. It's very important. The New Testament Christians, you and I individually, are the bride of Christ, sons of God, and His sheep who know Him and follow Him and know His voice. We are sheep and peculiar treasures and individually called those things. So, across the dispensations, going from Old Testament dispensation to the New, the primary application of this parable today is to the believer, to God's covenant person. Not the lost. I'm going to illustrate that in a minute. But the lost person today has zero covenant with God. They are called an enemy. They are outside the commonwealth of spiritual Israel. That's why technically the language of the New Testament gospel is not return to God. It's be reconciled, which that definition of that word means the institution of a new relationship that has never before existed. See, it was proper to the Old Testament Jew to say, return unto me, they had some sort of covenant. Only the Christian in the New Testament has a covenant relation to God. Let me give you further proof. First of all, the ratios used. Does it fit with what we would call evangelism to leave the ninety and nine who are saved and go after the one who's lost? Is that the ratio we see in the world around us? I've actually heard a pastor before say, I don't remember where I was reading it, but he used this to justify to say why he should just leave the people of God alone and not spend a lot of time building them up and go win everybody else. Let the church go to shambles because I'm going to leave the 90 and 9 and go after the one. That's not what this is saying. Okay, how about the terminology? You'll notice it's lost and found, not lost and saved. Thirdly, because of the discipline the son received in the far country. He wasn't just left to wallow in his iniquity without the day of reckoning coming. Famine comes. Rock bottom comes. The day came where he came face to face with his iniquity. Again, that's applicable to an Old Testament Jew. That's applicable to a New Testament Christian. But God's discipline is a sign of sonship in relationship. Hebrews makes that very, very clear. But I think here's the fourth one that's the most clear. Okay, the condition of restoration. If you just take this parable at face value, let's say you take this parable and say, this is pure gospel, the prodigal son. Here, read this. This will bring you to God. What is the condition of restoration given in that parable? It's confession. 
He comes back, he sincerely confesses his sin, he's taken back into sonship. There's no blood mention. There's no belief in a substitutionary atonement. The condition to restore the fellowship is confession, which, by the way, again, is only for the New Testament Christian this day and age. I, I don't know how many times I've heard it. I'll tell a lost person, you need to come confess your sins to God. No, you don't. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the condition of salvation for a lost person today. To tell them you got to confess, you got to say with your mouth, you got to believe, you get named nine different conditions, absolutely not. They're all crystallized into one. But for the true Christian, you don't have need to believe the gospel again. You have need to come confess your sins to God. That's the condition given, 1 John 1 and other places, for us to be restored into fellowship. Okay, so you take this passage and you, you, you force it into an evangelistic context. There's no gospel here. The gospel's not given. What those people need to see is there's a substitution who died in the place for your sins. They need to understand propitiation, not how sorry they feel. Now, in spite of that fact, I said before, many have come to Christ after hearing this parable preached. God is indeed a God of tremendous mercy. There's many truths here taught about God. We see here the fact that uh, God's desire is that men would be reconciled to Him. We see God's great patience and love and tenderness. Those Hudson Taylors, either great-grandfather or grandfather, I don't remember which, he was converted after hearing a sermon on marriage, of all things. I mean, God can use whatever text He wants, but we've got to keep things clear. Okay, but I just want to end with this thought. We can rest assured as God's covenant people if you belong to Christ. One thing we see here so wonderfully illustrated. This is exactly God's disposition. Every single time you find yourself in a far country in your heart. Does that ever happen? You may not physically depart. But in your heart, you know you're distant from God. You are in a far country, effectively feeding on the husk that the swine would eat. And for some reason in your mind, you will not humble yourself and, 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 and soften your stiff neck and go call your sin what it is. And part of what does that is we're fearful of the reception we're going to get. And so here's this prodigal going, let's see, i got it figured out. I'm going to go back and I'm going to... Yeah, I did wrong, but but I've got to, there's got to be penance. I got to I got to give up some things. I got to negotiate. What does he find? His banquet is ready. Father's looking over the horizon. The moment that boy shows his face, again I'll mention it later when we get to it. The father runs after him, which was a tremendous condescension old men in that day didn't run that was for the young men what it illustrates is God's heart towards primarily his covenant people isn't it true you fail nine times you confess it to God the tenth time you go I just I can't confess it I got to do some kind of penance I just got to show God how serious I am I really mean business so I'm going to think about it the next three days and uh, they want I'm going to negotiate. I'm going to say, Lord, let me, let me, let me show you how I mean business. I'm, I'm going to, let's see, what am I going to do? I'll put extra money in the plate. That's what I'll do. 
the condition is confession because the relationship already exists. We have to keep in our mind, we confess our sins. This is the heart of God mentioned in 1 John 1. Looking for you to come back. Ever pardoning iniquity. Every, ever ready and eager for fellowship with His people. And that's never going to change. One of the glorious things we'll talk about in Romans 8, but one of the reasons I think that chapter starts with no condemnation, you know what it is? You look at it and you go, well, wait a minute. Didn't we already deal with this back in chapter 4 and 5? Yes. But the person facing the struggle in Romans 7, what is it they're really afraid of? There's got to be some condemnation left for somebody who is still as sinful as me. And Paul starts reminding him of saying, no. It's been pinned to the cross. You approach God with boldness. Despite your wicked nature, you still have. You take Him at His word and you come. Because the Father's got the banquet table prepared. Alright, well tonight we're going to continue. We're actually going to get into the parable. Again, I appreciate your patience with the introductory material. I do hope that was helpful to somebody. Because the parables are wonderful. But we've got to be so careful how we interpret them. And they're going to harmonize with other portions of the Scripture. What they're going to do to us on this side of the, the totality of Revelation is bring to light other things that are taught throughout the New Testament. They're going to harmonize with further teaching regarding church and the Christian life. But let's pray. Father, thank You that... Lord, despite the fact we are feeble and pathetic so often... We do reason in our minds still, even though it is finished. We've got to come up with some token to show how much we mean it when you know our heart. Help us, Lord, to confess sin not on the basis of our sincerity, not on the basis of some sacrifice, but on the basis of the blood of Christ. Because we still remember, even in the hog trough, sins have been nailed to the cross. We can come back and have the robe put on, the sandals on our feet, the banquet prepared and angels rejoicing, even though we deserve nothing. In Jesus' name, Amen.